This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner, America's bounty of food is rich and varied. But there's plenty of hard work behind that bounty. And for too many of us, it's a case of out of sight, out of mind. This morning, we look at America's army of immigrant farm workers who, as Luke Burbank tells us, are unsung and undervalued, but essential ingredients. Farm workers are the hardest working, lowest paid, and yet most vital workers in America, according to farmer Shea Myers. Every single meal that we eat, every single person has required effort by someone in the fields. And Myers says we've got to rethink how we treat these often invisible people. As human beings, how can we argue against them being able to have the same opportunities that we have? We're taking the trip down to the farm. Coming up on Sunday morning. This past week, Stephen Colbert won yet another Peabody Award. The awards committee cites work that, quote, 
powerfully reflects pressing social issues. Some serious business for Stephen Colbert to discuss with our John Dickerson. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Something else, isn't it? It really is. A renovated supply closet is one of the places where Stephen Colbert taped his TV show during the pandemic. There's absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to hide how weird this feels. What's the this? Uh, being back in this room. The city is coming back again. But now people are back in his theater. I'm still waving. I'm still laughing. The return of the live audience and the laughter later on Sunday morning. Ever hear of Black Woodstock? When new Sunday morning contributor Hua Xu told us we just had to do this story, we listened. And I think you'll be glad we did. In 1969, artists like Gladys Knight and the Pips and the Fifth Dimension performed for a crowd of some 50,000 in New York's Harlem. Why hadn't we heard of this festival? The number one question I always had was like, wait a minute, you're trying to tell me that for 50 years no one was interested? Coming up this Sunday morning, the music festival that was left out of the history books. The British press is reporting Prince Charles won't meet with Harry when his son returns to England this week to unveil a new statue of Diana. Holly Williams will examine the ever-deepening royal family feud. Princess Diana would have turned 60 this Thursday. A new statue in London will honour her life and bring together her divided sons when it's unveiled this week. A lot of the people that I speak to that remain in the palace or were recently in the palace feel pretty badly scarred by the last couple of years. Scarred? Yeah, scarred, actually. They're they're very unhappy. Ahead on Sunday morning, how a family argument has exposed the challenges facing Britain's monarchy. Mo Rocca is in conversation with famed attorney Ted Olson, along with Steve Hartman, and more on this Sunday morning, the 27th of June, 2021. And we'll be back in a moment. Once again, the farmers of America are facing a summer of labor shortages, even as thousands of farm workers are refused entry into this country. And as Luke Burbank tells us, some farmers have had enough. You guys still haven't finished your row. You're kind of slow over here. Oh, man, we're trying to clean up everything. (laughs) Thank you. Something unusual happened a few months ago in an asparagus field on the Oregon-Idaho border. 6,000 people showed up on a Saturday for the chance to pick some free veggies. I'm a big fan on community, so it's really cool to see so many people out here. And Do you guys like eating asparagus? No. No. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's hard, and I'm 80 years old, so. <laughs> some needed the food. Some just wanted to get outside on a spring day. But most had never picked asparagus before. I hope I'm doing it okay. Well, it looks like you are. Okay. Which is where Shea Myers came in. You want to cut it deep enough so you don't see it anymore? See how the dirt fell over it? Myers, the farmer whose family owns the field, 
had been sleepless for days and getting ever more agitated on TikTok. I need this video to go out and for people to see it and understand the ramifications of what's going on at the border and the lack of labor that we have in this country. Agitated that he couldn't hire enough people to pick the asparagus crop, some $180,000 worth. So instead of throwing it away, he gave it away and created a viral moment. I put it out there with the idea, I think we thought we'd have five or 600 people come. We never thought, like 6,000 wasn't even in the realm of reality. Myers says that one day cost him and his family their entire asparagus profit for the year. But that's what can happen when you're reliant on an increasingly scarce labor force coming in from Mexico. Farm laborers are so critical to our actual life on a daily basis. I mean, they're they're picking the food that's on your dinner table. That day in April, Shea's workers from Mexico were stuck at the border because of a holdup with their visas. The H-2A guest worker program gives agricultural workers temporary visas to come from abroad if farmers can't find enough domestic workers. In case you were wondering, Myers Farm pays around $16 an hour for farm work. It's hard work. And culturally, as a nation, we look down, I think, on, on um, field workers and, and the, the type of work that's done in the field for some reason. And so it's, it's, it is, it's a catch-22. Myers and farmers across America are grappling with the fact that it's almost impossible to grow fruits and vegetables without farm workers. Myers is a third-generation farmer. His grandfather started the farm in eastern Oregon with a single borrowed tractor and some rented farmland after returning from the Korean War. Nearly 50 years later, Owahi Produce, as the company is now known, runs a state-of-the-art operation. How many onions do you guys produce in a year? We will produce about 2 million 50-pound bags per year. 2 million bags? 2 million bags. Something in the 200 million onion range, I guess, if we're going to do on an onion basis. That's a lot of onions. And every single one of those onions is photographed by this $3 million machine, operated by the steady hand of Eliana Ramirez, who does QC, or quality control for the farm. She got her start in the field. I remember I was planting onions, and one of my friends calls me, and she's like, hey, there's a one position open for QC. Do you think I, you can do it? And I was like, I don't know, because... Uh, my English is not that good. Myers convinced Ramirez that she could do it and even gave her time off to complete a college degree while she was working. They're giving me some opportunities that actually I never had in other jobs. I see the qualities that I have before actually discovering by myself. Myers says he feels it's important that agricultural workers have something to work towards. As an employer, I want people to have a future, and I got to know that they have a future because it's not very rewarding to do your job, weeding in the fields or cutting asparagus or pitching watermelons or whatever they might be doing, and consider or, or think that they have nowhere to go from there. What time did you come out the field this morning? Six o'clock. 
back in 1960 when Edward R. Murrow documented the plight of farm workers in the documentary Harvest of Shame. These are the forgotten people, the underprotected, the undereducated, the underclothed, the underfed. We should like you to meet some of your fellow citizens who harvest the food for the best fed nation on earth. Migrant workers followed the harvest. What do you want most for your children, Mrs. Dobie? Well, I'd like for them to have a career, whatever they want to be. These days, Murrow's migrant workers have mostly moved up the economic ladder, leaving agriculture to immigrant workers, with some agricultural economists estimating that in order to get Americans to work in the field, farmers would have to pay something like $23 an hour. People who are, like, eating their breakfast right now, what are the chances that, you know, vegetable that they're having was picked by somebody who isn't legally documented in this country? 90% probably. I mean, it's, it's the majority. If it's not an H-2A program, the majority of the people doing the work are likely undocumented. I think most people would agree with me that it doesn't make sense that we depend on a workforce uh, who can't even remain here legally. It's not easy for the farmers. It's not easy for the workers. It's far from ideal. Diane Charlton is an agricultural economist at Montana State University who's studied immigration and agriculture. There is currently a bill in Congress to try to reform the H-2A program to make it easier for producers to use that program to provide a path to citizenship for those who participate in the program. Unfortunately, uh, there have not been better solutions for many decades. But reforming H-2A wouldn't actually help undocumented farm workers, which Myers says are the majority and are not actually legally permitted to work in the United States. As human beings, how can we argue against them being able to have the same opportunities that we have? For Myers, a self-described staunch conservative, one of the first changes he'd make would be to give immigrant, undocumented workers a path to citizenship. They came here with a dream. They came here to make a difference for their family. They came here to improve their lives. They, they put food on everyone's table. They should have a way, a path to citizenship. There's no question that they should have a path to citizenship. The simple fact is that a lot of the food that we eat in this country is picked by people who are often invisible to us. People like Maricela, who we caught up with while she was picking asparagus. And she had a message for the people watching this story. Well, nothing more than, don't be racist towards us. If you'd like to come here, we can teach you to cut asparagus. Nothing more. We just want to come here and work. A statue of Princess Diana will be unveiled at Kensington Palace in London on Thursday, which would have been Diana's 60th birthday. It comes, Holly Williams explains, as Britain's fractured royal family faces an uncertain future. The new statue of Princess Diana will honor a woman whose charisma, compassion, and rebellious streak revolutionized royal affairs.
It will also be just the second time that her sons, Prince William and Prince Harry, have been seen together since Harry and his wife Meghan began publicly criticising the royal family from their new home in California. The first time was this stilted-looking encounter at the funeral of their grandfather, Prince Philip. How difficult is it for Harry to make these return visits to the UK following the interview that he and Meghan did with Oprah? Oh, it's incredibly difficult. They are like pariahs in this country. They are treated abysmally by the press. They are criticised left, right and centre. Aisha Hazarika is a journalist and former political advisor who says the royal family's been damaged by the couple's allegations of racism. There's a lot of younger people, a lot of people from black and Asian communities that look at that. They took that very, very personally. They felt really ashamed of the royal family and quite embarrassed about Britain. She says the royal family is desperately missing Harry and Meghan's star power. William and Kate are really being pushed to the fore in terms of publicity, particularly Kate Middleton. I think what the PR machine behind the royal family is trying to do is turn William and Kate into the new Meghan and Harry. They're trying to make them a bit sort of rock star-like. Kate and William released this Hollywood-style video to mark their 10th wedding anniversary. The royal family has never done anything like it before. It was Kate who appeared with First Lady Jill Biden on her visit to the UK this month. Hello, very nice to meet you. And Kate, who's become prolific on Zoom calls with members of the public. Whether it's on the phone, on, you know, through social media. Harry and Meghan were very, very popular and they sucked up an awful lot of the oxygen. And so with them off the scene, there is simply more attention paid to William and Kate. Johnny Diamond is a royal correspondent for BBC News. Child Lilibet. Lilibet, of course. Who this month reported on Harry and Meghan's decision to name their newborn daughter Lilibet, a private royal family nickname for the Queen. The couple said the Queen supported it, but were publicly humiliated when a palace source told Diamond she hadn't been asked. When I first reported on it, I said that is a mark of great love and respect. Then I was told a slightly different story from the palace. It has not made people feel any better, I think, on either side of the Atlantic. While the vast majority of British citizens still support the monarchy, younger people are much more sympathetic to Harry and Meghan. But even more strikingly, over 40% of those aged 18 to 24 now say they'd prefer an elected head of state, according to a recent poll. I'm pretty agnostic about the royals. I appreciate some people love them and they're here, but I don't personally see the need for them or think Britain would be a lesser country without them. Jane Wilson is one of the Queen's subjects who says she could do without her. She's also a public relations guru. We asked her to analyse the new video. It was like an, like an ad for an insurance company or, or, or some country living company. Do you think it was at least in part explicitly done to kind of counter the narrative pushed by Harry and Meghan? I think almost certainly. I think it started a sort of soft power charm offensive um, for the family, for Kate and Wills in particular. A family argument has exposed the challenges faced by a 1,000-year-old institution in the modern world.
I don't think there's any doubt that there is debate in the palace about the future of the monarchy. And are they worried? I, I, I don't know if they're worried. They know they have no God-given right to survive. They know that they are here with the forbearance and with the support of the British people. I don't think they're terrified. But yeah, without doubt, they think about it. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. Steve Hartman this morning has a story of something lost and something found. Fishermen are known for their fish stories. But the whopper that charter boat captains Mark Paisano and Paul Strasser are about to unspool is all too real. That story just uh, really throws a loop in me. It was catastrophic. Imagining what she went through that day is unspeakable, really. 35 years ago, Paul and Mark were piloting a charter back from Catalina Island off the California coast when they came across a capsized boat and an orange life vest bobbing in the waves. Mark jumped in and pulled out nine-year-old Desiree Rodriguez, the only survivor, her mother, father, sister, aunt, and uncle, all perished. Desiree had been in the water 20 hours. It was against all odds that she was still coherent and alive. This was the last time Paul and Mark ever saw little Desiree, and they've always wondered about her. Okay. Which is why a podcaster named Phil Friedman invited the men on his show. Mark Paisano. Hi. Along with a surprise guest. I'm going to let her introduce herself to you. I'm Desiree. <laughs> the brims of their ball caps weren't nearly wide enough to hide the joy. 35 years, not nearly long enough to erase the bond. I'm so happy. <laughs> when I connected with them, they brought a lot of closure. Since then, they have stayed in touch. And not long ago, Paul and Mark invited Desiree, the aunt who raised her, and the rest of her family to take a little trip. It was Desiree's first time back on the ocean, a journey that would bring her full circle. This is basically the area right here. Right back to where it all happened. I'm kind of glad we can come together today and kind of heal. The bodies of her father, sister, and uncle were never recovered. This was their first memorial, a commemoration of the family she lost, but also a celebration of the guardian angels she gained. Right, yeah. And that's how I feel. I hope to know you guys forever. You know, everybody says God works in mysterious ways. I feel like, you know, let's find you. Fishermen usually tell stories about the one that got away. But Paul and Mark will always cherish the one who got to stay. Audience. 
He's all yours now. It's Sunday morning on CBS. Here again is Jane Pauley. Stephen Colbert back at it, pursuing the serious business of being funny in front of a live studio audience. Quite a switch from those months when the late show with Stephen Colbert was pretty much a family affair. He's chatting with fan and friend John Dickerson. Tell me about June 14th. Nervous? Yeah, very nervous. I was nervous, not necessarily that I would forget how to perform in front of an audience, but a little bit. Two weeks ago, the slightly anxious star of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert returned to his workplace, the 400-person Ed Sullivan Theater, whose seats had been empty for 460 days. Vaccine card, ID, and ticket. More than 20,000 requested tickets. Attendance required proof of vaccination. They were there for much more than just a laugh. I wrote to him, you have gotten me through this time. The reunion was a mass echo of the smaller reunions among friends separated during quarantine. On June 14th, did you, like, look out the window and look at the line? I didn't. I haven't got no time for looking out windows, John Dickerson. (laughs) I'm a working man. Just your average working man. It's like this is where we work. Atop a staff of hundreds, which during lockdown included his wife, Evie. You're going to kill it. Deputized into Colbert's exacting routine of writing, rehearsing, rewriting, right up until showtime. His first line on reopening night came to him just before he hit the stage. So I thought, something's missing here. And that was just checking in with the audience, because they've been through this, too. So how you been? Chatty, familiar, just what you'd say to an old friend. I don't know if I even remember how to pander to the most beautiful crowd in the world. The Late Show with Stephen Colbert suspended production on March 12, 2020. Just a few hours ago, we got some surprising news. We would be going without an audience starting tonight. It was chaos for a performer who needs order. I don't like things to change at all. Why do I have a blue pen? I usually have a white pen. I don't understand. <laughs> what, are you trying to kill me? I'll change. I don't mind changing what I say or what I do, but nothing around me can change. The Late Show's new temporary set, the historic Ed Sullivan My House. Colbert soon began taping from his home in South Carolina. This is going very smoothly. A library became a thicket. That's the camera that I would talk into. That's the prompter. That's the tangle. Oh, the wires! Colbert enlisted his three children as crew members. Why is my son sitting on that couch over there with a headset on, talking to my director back in New York? Say hi to Jim. Hi, Jim. I need a mom volunteer from the audience to come up and help me out. But the bulk of the heavy lifting was on the shoulders of Evie, his wife of 28 years. Okay. Oh, God. There you go. Watch the, watch the tangle there. Your tough love is one of my favorite things that happened over the last 15 months. I finished one night, and I went, fell down like a tree, face down on the sofa, and I said... I don't know how on earth I'm going to keep doing this. You did not say, oh, oh, I'm so like that. You looked at me and you said, you'll figure it out, and walked out of the room. And I went, yeah, she's right. (laughs) Yep. It was the right thing to do. It was true. you got to do that. We did figure it out, yes. Did you ever forget that this was your wife, Stephen? Probably. No, no, I never forgot. There were a few times. What did I do? Well, you'd be like, "This isn't working," and I'm like, "Oh, did I?" I don't really work here. I kind of work here, so don't yell at me. (laughs) Okay, guilty. That was when I had like the crew hat on. When I had the 
audience hat on, he was very nice to me because he wanted me to laugh. Evie Colbert was her husband's audience of one and a supporting player. I want this to be a good experience for you. I'll come back. You'll come back? Okay, good. Okay. I live here. Have you First, I'd be like, <laughs> but he couldn't hear that. <laughs> so it had to be more like, <laughs> you know, one time I, don't I said, know. remember I don't one know. time I said, I, don't oh, know I, think I said something like, oh, that's very funny. And you went, oh, everybody <laughs> said, that's very funny. That's not a laugh. That's not what I said. You said, oh, that's very funny. I said, you know what? You can work a lifetime as a comedian. <laughs> And never hear something so satisfying as an audience member saying, that's very funny. That's <laughs> so, what we go for. That's why I got into this business. There's a room full of people go, that's very funny. Tell another. I did. And, you know, I could also tell when it would help. And it was fun. I mean, being told to laugh for someone is great. We're not going to have any of your kids with us on Mother's Day. No. No, we won't. No, that's sad. No. I mean, yes, it's sad. <laughs> I used to think, if I could get an audience to laugh the way Evie laughs... I think I'll be okay. And for the last 15 months, that's the only laugh I had. And it just confirms that that's really the kind of laugh I always want. Some things have changed, you might have noticed. You heard Evie. She's still there. Hello. I don't know how long that's going to last. In August of last year, Colbert then returned to the building with his name on it. I'm back in New York City. As you can see, look, it's New York. For the first time since March 12th. In the historic Ed Sullivan Theater's office building. But there was still no live audience for a performer who built a craft around reading giggles and guffaws from the seats. That, that, that feels about right. I started off in improv and cabaret and sketch, and that's all about relationship to the audience, especially improvisation. That's what you train your entire life to do, is to get a particular sound from the audience. Because that's the great thing about comedy, is that you know when it's working, the audience makes this sound, and you go, oh, that worked. Am I in the theater right now? No. Are you 400 people? No. Why aren't you 400 people? <laughs> to me, it felt like you were playing catch in a field without somebody to play catch with. Yeah. I've often talked about the show as a game of catch. I like to say to the audience that we do the show for you and we do the show to you, but we really do the show with you because their energy makes the show. The clothes make the man, but the audience makes the show. Did you ever come down here and just wander around kind of remembering it as it was? No. Like many of us returning to what we used to do, Colbert carries some portion of the last year and a half with him. Is that your spot? As he encounters the familiar, uh, yes. like his home state symbol. This is where I do the monologue every night. I love it. And nobody's ever noticed. No one's ever asked yeah. me about it. From the right angle, you could certainly see that it's there, but no one's ever said anything about it. Oh, it's just another reminder of who I am yeah. and where I'm from. And now it's a constant reminder of what we did down there. A reminder of the essentials even for a performer whose routine includes a reminder about the essentials. Why do you slap yourself before you go out on stage? Because you only have one shot to do those jokes. And I want to be awake. I slap myself in the face twice, and my own rule for myself is that I have to slap myself hard enough that I regret having done it. And that means I actually didn't hold back. And then I'm awake. And I say to myself, don't blow this opportunity. You want to go do these jokes. You actually really like these guests. Act like it. He's one of our best-known attorneys. He's argued dozens of cases before the United States Supreme Court. Still, with attorney Ted Olson, Mo Rocca has discovered easy labels don't apply. 
When did you first argue before the Supreme Court? When I was an assistant attorney general. It was 1983. Do you remember it vividly? Yes, I remember every word vividly. I remember the preparation. I remember breaking my glasses the day before the argument, thinking, how can this happen to me? Was it out of nervousness that you broke them, you think? Of course it was nervousness. Anybody that argues in the Supreme Court is going to be nervous, no matter whether it's your first time or the 50th time. You're going to be nervous. Mr. Olson? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Olson. You say it is now unconstitutional. Yes. There are several answers to it, and I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Ted Olson has argued before the U.S. Supreme Court 65 times on some of the most consequential cases of the last quarter century, making him as close as an attorney can get to a household name. You look like Ted Olson. That can't be. Good morning. A star in conservative legal circles, Olson, a California native, went to law school at Berkeley, a locus of liberal activism in the 1960s. Did you feel like an outlier at Berkeley? Well, those of us who were Republicans, which was a very small minority, I think we were treated quite well. Most of the people thought of us as curiosities. The public came to know Olson when he represented the Bush side in Bush v. Gore. We've argued that the Florida Supreme Court overturned... The case that decided the 2000 presidential election in George W. Bush's favor. Why did the Bush side win? We were right. I will support After serving as President Bush's Solicitor General... Olson left the government and in 2010 argued on behalf of the political group Citizens United. We hope the court will come out strongly in favor of the First Amendment right of all citizens, including corporations and unions. In its ruling, the court struck down limits on political spending, and the group's name became shorthand for outrage about big money in politics. High priority would be to overturn Citizens United. And we have to overturn Citizens United. But at least two of his subsequent cases surprised many on the right. This is a matter of fundamental human rights and human decency. First, he teamed up with David Boyes, his opponent from Bush v. Gore, to overturn California's ban on same-sex marriage in 2013. The equal protection of the laws is the protection of equal laws. It is not something that's partisan or anything like that. It's about American values. The first question we were being asked by people in the media, why did you come together? And that gave us the opportunity to explain what was wrong with this discrimination. Say it loud, say it Immigrants are welcome here. And in 2019, in the so-called Dreamers case, he represented a group of immigrants brought to the United States illegally as children and now threatened with deportation. I went and spent time with these people, and each one told their story, where they came from, when they came to the United States, what it would mean for them to be wrenched away from their family or their job and sent to a country that they did not know. Uh, and I felt very keenly the stories of these individuals, and I thought, I have got to win this case. I want to introduce you to Ted Olson. Olson won that one, too. 
But his involvement in the Dreamers case added to the speculation that the Republican stalwart was going soft. A lot of people like to say, oh, I had influence on him as a Democrat or as a liberal thinking person. In 2002, Olson met Lady Booth, an attorney from Kentucky, and his political opposite. The person fixing me up with him said, no, 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 he was one of the attorneys in Bush versus Gore. He's brilliant. And I put the tapes in the VHS tapes out of my closet, and I, oh my gosh, he was, he was representing Bush, not Gore. You had that trial taped. I did. Yeah. Geek that I was. The couple's first date was just a few months after the September 11th attacks, which left Olson widowed. In the moments before the plane crashed, there were phone calls. Olson's then-wife, Barbara, a prominent conservative commentator, was on the plane that hit the Pentagon that day. Olson made two phone calls to her husband. She described how the hijackers, using knife-like instruments, herded the passengers to the back of the plane. Her last words to her husband, what do I tell the pilot to do? In the terrible weeks that followed, Olson turned to his mother for counsel. We had lost my father, her husband, a few years before, and she had immediately started meeting people and dating people. And she took me aside and she said, Ted, it's time for you to get out and meet people, socialize. Uh, and she said, you're a young man. And I said, Mom, I'm 60 years old. And she said, I'm 80. I think that the best way of respecting the person that you loved and that you lost is to get out and live. And look how lucky I was. Ted and Lady married in 2006. They say their mixed marriage is proof that people are more than their party affiliation. She's got her own mind, and she's, she's got more law degrees than I do. <laughs> we can talk about some things, but I'm not going to try to persuade her of my point of view on anything, except maybe where we go on vacation or something. <laughs> And despite the talk, Olson insists he hasn't changed. If people look at the chronology of the cases you've won, there's the Ted Olson of Bush v. Gore and Citizens United. There's the Ted Olson of Prop 8 and the Dreamers case. Are those the same Ted Olson? <laughs> well, Lady will tell you that it's all because of her. The good, the good arguments and the good cases and the noble causes are because of Lady. But were you conservative then and conservative now? I would answer it one way. Um, I think I've always been a conservative. People tend to want to put people in boxes, and people overdo the conservative or liberal thing. That's Steve. Now 80, Ted Olson says he's unlikely to argue another case in front of the Supreme Court, but he still believes that making a good argument is possible without being at each other's throats, something he learned back in college debate class. The idea of the analysis and trying to understand both sides of an issue and being persuasive on this side and then being persuasive on the other side. That really stretches a mental muscle, right? I think that's a very good thing for people to do. In today's world, people are so polarized and there's not a lot of time spent trying to think the way the other side thinks or try to express what the other side is expressing and believing. I think it would probably be good for all of us. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.
If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.